0: You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Celebrating this group
1: tonight.
2: So, this book is the latest in the 33 and a third series. So, the 33 and a third series is a series of short books for those of you who don't know. And it focuses on individual albums. So, you know, we're talking about artists like James Brown, Kennedy, the Kennedys, Celine Dion, and kind Each album kind of covers, you know, a specific area, and it really places an album in the context of the greater kind of music. History. So, with us tonight is Jen Kelly, who is the author of this book, she's an editor at Pitchfork, which is an online source for new music. Her writing has appeared in Rolling Stone, in Spin, in The Wire, in The Village Voice i um, really, really happy that you produced this, this wonderful, wonderful artifact. Uh, and joining her is Real Marcus, uh, needs very little introduction, uh, he's of course a great music journalist, music journalist, cultural critic, author of numerous notable books including History Train, um, Lipstick Traces, Who has not read that, uh, Invisible Republic, Bob Dylan's Basement Tapes, and many, many other books. Uh, His work is a period, of course, in Rolling Stone, The Believer, The Village Voice, Art Forum, and many other places. Uh, Welcome to you both. This is really an honor to have you both with us here tonight. Uh, To get the evening started, I would like to bring out Maureen Russell. This event is being co-sponsored by San Francisco's Rock and Roll Book Club, which is a kind of a loose-knit group of regulars and non-regulars that enjoy music and reading books about it. Um, Usually, they pick a watering hole, and every other month they will kind of congregate, and it's a really fun, fun, you know, kind of um, evening for everyone involved. They have had authors like Alice Begg, Robert Gordon, Pauline Butcher, and many others. So, uh, Maureen, would you like to say a few words about the club? Uh,
0: Thanks to Peter for putting the event together and thinking of us. We do uh, tend to do a lot of books, um, music from the 60s and 70s, and also books about women so this is right up our own um also one title related to tonight's event that if you don't know about it we enjoyed a lot is the fifth alberton was close 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 music 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 voice 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 and memoirs that's what her mother said she always talked about when she was younger and um I also want to mention the 33 and a third series. It's cool because it fits in your cursor bag and you don't even realize it's, it's still there. So, um, and I'll be around afterwards if you guys have any questions. And there's a couple a lot of seats up in the front for anyone in the back. Thanks so much, um, everyone, for
1: coming. Thank you for being here. Um, I thought we could start. Is the mic okay? <laughs> I thought we could start by each reading a bit that we've. Okay, <laughs> reading a bit that we've um, written about the raincoats. So I'll start by reading from the book, and then I no, will read. Uh, this is from the first chapter of the book. Virginia Woolf once said that women need money and rooms of their own in order to create works of genius. In 1979, the Rinkers didn't have any money, but they found no room in the form of a crumbling basement squat in London. In total disrepair down a dead-end road, it was a dilapidated universal space so tiny and cramped and gray that someone had to sit on a toilet planted in the middle of the floor in order for everyone to fit. A mattress lay against the wall to help mask the perpetual bashing about, the near-constant racket. Magic has its way of beaming in the floor of the margins. In these grotesque quarters, the Raincoats dug out some beauty from within and wrote a debut album that has become classic. The Raincoats is factually, be- factually a beginning, but it is also a record about beginnings. In its songs, you hear a cultural genesis story. The Raincoats were a group of women who were, in part, just learning to play their instruments. But their debut album also coincides with the start of a whole artistic sensibility, one of the fearless and knowing amateurism. These overcast songs are charged with the feeling of newness that comes with realizing you are not what you expected. It is the sound of finding things buried inside you that you did not know were there. It is the sound of realities expanding note by note, of accepting punk's dare. Is the sound of people believing in themselves. The Raincoat's protagonists, who are also with authors, are young female mavericks alone in the city. They wander many miles of concrete streets and still more in the solitude of their minds. The scrappiness of life rumbles and tumbles along. They gaze at two platforms and dream. With its defiantly shy temperament, the Raincoats is introversion as punk a celebration of the female interior life. This is why its 34 minutes of clattering feminist outsider art have become spiritual music for so many generations of women, and medicine for the quietest, cast out kids. Oats to outsiders among outsiders in perpetuity. It is an ultimate warner album. Released at the magic hour of the anti-genre now called post-punk, the raincoats. Captures the band with a fleeting but crucial all female lineup. They lasted in this formation for only eight months, playing 28 shows together by the summer of 79's end. The Raincoats is the intuitive music of four people who were totally honest in reflecting the conditions of their lives as women. Four distinct and disparate personalities are harmonizing. In drawing on the various worlds in which they came, England, Spain, and Portugal among them, the raincoats shaped their own.
3: Well, I'll a little bit. In late 1979, a guy showed up at my house in Berkeley. He was an emissary from Rough Trade Records in London. And he brought me the first Raincoats album, um, a single by Essential Logic called Wake Up. And the first game, four albums, and left. Uh, and I put them on and I played them, and I had never heard such <coughs> interesting music for in years and years. I'm not the sort of person who likes to meet the people whose records I listen to or books I read. But this stuff sounded like it was made by really interesting people. And I wanted to find out who they were. I was working for Rolling Stone now. So um, I went to England to do a story about the gang of war, essential logic, the Raincoats. And I met the gang of the Raincoats, and a the show they were doing together early 1980 in Portsmouth. Um, and the Raincoats opened, opened the show. They leaped into their first number, Aspenol. Well, oh, I'll go back a second. These were the raincoats. Vicky Aspinall, 24, playing violin and guitar. Gina Birch, 24, playing bass. Anna De Silva, 31, guitar. And Ingrid Weiss, who was 19, playing drums. She replaced their original drummer, Paul Molly. They leaped into their first number, Aspinall getting a hard, abrasive sound out of her violin, the beat stuttering. Three high voices harmonizing with an off-stage realism across the sharp edges of the melody, and within a minute or so, the raincoats seemed to have trashed every female stereotype in rock and roll. It was a matter of demeanor, backed up by a new sound. Without gestures, without a trace of rhetoric, the raincoats got it across that they had no interest in whatever images of the woman in rock one might have brought to their show and no interest in providing any. Women in rock have never had access to the levels of prosaic reality available to men, whose presence on stage is not before it's anything else a novelty. Women have had to uh, acknowledge this contradiction with a renegade sexual persona. Tough chick, sufferer, dirty mama, etc. And a highly touted new, that is recent, American female singers, Carolyn Moss, Pat Benatar, Pearlie E. Gates, Ellen Foley, couldn't be more reactionary. Their music exists to support images pre-sold years ago. Polly Styree, the great vocalist for the seminal punk band X-Ray Specs, may have escaped this trap. Carol King could have. Robin Lane and Chrissy Hind might. Laura Logic and the raincoats definitely have. The basic theme of rock and roll is what goes on between men and women, said the raincoach, raincoats, each one chipping into the conversation. Rock and roll is based on black music, and it's based in the exclusion of women and the ghettoization of blacks, which is why we want to put a distance between what we do and the rock and roll tradition. But as the raincoats stand back from the tradition, they also open it up. There's something wonderfully anonymous about these women and their music. As four women appearing as nothing but themselves, they demystify each other. Their very idea of roles is done away with. The raincoats would not, it's suggested, relate to each other or to other people much differently if they were four carpenters. But because they're on stage, in front of an audience, They're moved to give full play to all the wit, brains, anger, and affection they have in them. They seize the prosaic and fling it back with the intensity of a terrible quarrel, with the satisfaction of a moment in which nothing needs to be said. I was amazed. Well, Jim, with this book, um, what was the most frustrating
1: most frustrating thing about it? Uh, Well, in a technical sense, I would probably say the length, because (laughs) there's so much more to be said about the raincoats, I think. And um, I think you told me that your favorite record was the second one, right? Out of Shape. Out of Shape. Yeah. And so I wish I would have had the space to write more about Out of Shape and their third record moving. aside from that um maybe another frustration was that people's memories are not great so i would often <laughs> ask questions who would tell me you would have asked me that 30 years ago i would have remembered which in a way um like it was surprising to me that no one tried to write this book until i started in 2014 um maybe if someone had written a book about the raincoats in you know, 1994, when they had their initial second wave of interest, Um, people people would remember more things. Um, But aside from that, um, there weren't too many.
3: What was the most gratifying thing about writing
1: this book? I think for me, the most gratifying thing about writing it was learning about who they are as people, which it was so interesting to me that you wanted to find out about them when you were exploring the Raincoats music in 1980 um, because um, going into it, I really felt like it was odd that there wasn't a ton of information available about them. Um, I hadn't um, like read a book about the Raincoats before. Um, and so learning about where Anna, Gina, Pamela, Vicky, and Shirley were all coming from, I felt like I could start to hear these really distinct personalities that play on the record. And I feel like um, having that um, just deepened my connection to the music um, every time I listen to it. And that's for sure the most fulfilling thing.
3: Well, this record came out in 1979.
1: How did you I, did it? Um, I first heard the raincoats when someone put them on a mix for me, which was um, a long time after 1979. Um, I, it was funny because for a long time I couldn't remember anything else on the mix. It's like the rest of it just disappeared from my memory and um, the raincoats were the only band from it that I really got into. Um, <laughs> And Shortly after I first heard the record, um, the Raincoats played a show at MoMA in New York City in 2010, and I remember going to that show and feeling like so many people who I really respected were at it, Um, and the excitement and like energy of the show um, kind of just solidified my Raincoats fandom, and yeah, it was like life, life changing.
3: Well, I wanted to ask, of all the people here, does everyone know who the raincoats are, were, are? (coughs) I guess there's a general nodding of heads and a couple of waving hands. Um, One of the most magical things about your book, to me, um, comes at the end when you begin to trace their presence in culture now. Um, and I wonder if you could tell the story of uh, 10 Things I Hate About You. And, and not only just that, but your sense of wonder at, at that story.
1: Yeah, for sure. When I started, uh, well I'm not sure if everyone to seen 10 Things I Hate About You or not, but there's this <laughs> Scene pretty um, in the movie when um, you know, what it was and mm-hmm. music. yeah yeah.
3: So
0: it's
1: uh, 1999, it's um, Julie Styles plays this like girl outcast who <laughs> this girl outcast who uh, reads the bell jar and she um, hates prom, and she's like an outcast and she listens to the Ray Codes Bikini Kill. And there's this guy played by Heath Ledger and he has been kind of like paid off to try to win Julia Stiles' affection. And so he finds out that she's a Raincoats fan and he follows her to this club. I think it's called Club Skunk, if I remember correctly. <laughs> and they're like at the bar and she's really uh like irritated that he followed her there and um, Keith Ledger's character, like, points at the stage and is like, oh, they're no Bikini Killer raincoats, but they're not bad. And Julia Stiles' character is like, how do you know who the raincoats are? And it's kind of this thing where, like, the raincoats is clearly this um, key but but turns. Um, and Julia Stiles, like, she thinks they're on the same level after that, or she feels like... Um, he like, understands something about her. Um, it's definitely uh, a turning point in the movie, for sure. Um, and it's really interesting to me that we were talking about um, the film 20th Century Women that came out um, last year. And the raincoats are also central to a scene in that film. And it feels like, again, it's this kind of turning point where like some people understand the raincoats Some people don't understand the raincoats. Um, And it's this, um, they're like this symbol that draws people together and kind of like, solidifies a connection between some characters, not other characters. Um, I definitely recommend seeing 20th Century Woman if you had it because um, to see a movie um, include the raincoats and kind of present them in this really meaningful, Way, just like maybe almost fall out of my chair in the movie theater to be honest. Can you
3: describe what was so different about their music when it first appeared in nineteen seventy nine? And and why or how it sounds so different still today. Could you
1: hold the mic a little further
3: away. Hold a little further away? Okay.
1: Oh, okay. Is this alright? It works? Okay, sure. <laughs> Thanks um well in 1979 when the raincoats um were composing their music and performing it was kind of the beginning of people uh, creating music because of punk but not necessarily making music that sounded punk um and what's so magical about it to me and like, remains magical about it to me is um just that for me, like the feeling that there's, there are four women figuring out how to write this music together, and you can hear that in it. They're listening to one another, and um, like a song like "The Void," you can hear this kind of like collective action of the bass and the violin, kind of pushing the song. Um, and is, do you agree? Okay. Yeah. I'd be curious what was yeah. magical for you about it. Well, it, it's funny. When I,
3: when I first heard it, I thought I was hearing a version of ordinary life or, or real life. Um, there were melodies and, and there were rhythms and all of that. But they all sort of disappeared. And I couldn't exactly follow the lyrics, but I didn't care because all the drama was in the tone of voice and the tone of voice was completely ordinary. It was the tones of people talking. And have you heard and where have you been? You've got to be kidding. What? You know, that kind of thing just doesn't happen. How could you? And and all of that going on without any of those words. And I thought, how do you make music out of this? How do you make music out of real life and real life into, into music? That's what so struck me. And I listened to this album a couple of times um, last night. And I suppose, like most people, when I first heard it, the first thing I heard was clatter. And not so much experiment, but people trying to communicate with each other on instruments that weren't totally familiar to them. And what I heard last night was a combination of real sophistication and daring and thought in terms of arrangements and all these different parts fitting together, but fitting together that way instead of this way. And I also heard it sound as if it was made up on the spot, but it sounded sophisticated in a way that
1: I hadn't caught all those years ago. I feel like the sophistication of their music is something that, for me, I I always felt. Like when I when I heard them, I guess I was maybe 19 years old. Um, but the idea of it just sounding like real life is something that has always struck me and been really important. Like, I think like part of the reason I wanted to do this book was because, listening to the raincoats felt like the most evocative, like um it was like the the strongest I had ever felt reflected in music. I listened to it and it just felt like it was already a part of me somehow. Like there the the, you know, the the wall. There was like no wall in between the music and my life. Um and I felt like part of the reason I wanted to do the book was to kind of investigate that and try to figure it out because until I dedicated a substantial amount of time to thinking about it. I didn't really feel like I could articulate it. Um, but.
3: The books in this series, the 33 and the third series, I don't know how many there are now, but there are a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, they take all different forms. There are a couple that are written as novels. Um, One about the Smiths, one about the band's music from Big Pink is just a a coruscating, heroin-soaked, awful (laughs) novel about people who are just ruining their lives. And out of this comes music that, you know, sounds like it's always been there and it always will. It's just this inexplicable mystery and that's why it works as a, as a novel. Some are very conventional musicology. Some simply tell a story from A to B. Yours is the first book in the series, and I certainly haven't read all of them, that really focuses on people, on individuals, getting to know people. Can you tell us why you chose to do that? Well,
1: it's interesting because it. The reason I wanted to do that is I felt like there was this kind of sense of mystery around the raincoats for me always, and there was this feeling of mystery for them around them for other raincoat fans that had talked to like who are these people? Like the fact that um, we we know Gina Bursch was into is into conceptual art, but but like, what conceptual art did she make or? Um, I knew that Ana de Silva was from Portugal at a time when it was a fascist country, but I didn't know if that had influenced her decision to um, get into punk or start a punk band. Um, and so to me, there were all these like, hints that these are, as you said, like really interesting people, um, but it, they were just hints. I, didn't, I had never read a biography of any of the members of the band before. Um, so in a way, I guess I did of want to, to demystify them as people and see if it would reveal anything about the music and i personally feel like learning about them did demystify a lot about the music um it's interesting because i feel like you um wrote once that you thought the raincoats could complete the demystification of women making popular music the and uh, in, in a way i kind of wanted to demystify them as people um, and yeah learning um learning about the respective backgrounds of anna De Silva, the guitarist and vocalist and the drummer Paul olive was really um one of the most like illuminating parts of the process for me um, I knew that Palmolo was from Spain, and I knew that Anna was from Portugal, and I kind of had this like um, had this hunch that they had left those countries to escape fascism. Um, but it was really interesting to me to have longer conversations with them about that. Like, Palmolo said to me at one point in our conversations that for her, the idea of democracy had Become completely non-negotiable in terms of the way she's going to approach um, being an artist and making music, um, which I think you can totally hear when you listen to her play drums. And it was the same thing with Annie Silva. Um, she also it was like really crucial to her that if she was going to have a band, it would be um, a collective process. Um, there would be no one person kind of deciding. How songs would be written, or what was going to happen, and um, yeah. They made their,
3: (coughs) excuse me. They made their first records, um, a single called "Fairy Tale of the Supermarket," and and this album, "The Raincoats," for a company called Rough Trade, that was run by uh, a man named Jeff Travis, who was central to their story. tell people about Jeff Travis and
1: Rough Trade. Yeah, I I was really excited to do this at City Lights because um, when Jeff Travis was starting Rough Trade, the record shop in the late 70s, he was directly inspired by the, um, and influenced by the environment and community of City Lights. And wanted to he wanted to start a record store where you could go and, like, just hang out and not feel pressured to buy anything. (laughs) And so it was was interesting to me talking to Jeff and learning more about the history of Rough Trade and um, hearing him talk about the idea of a record store and a record label where um, everything is completely democratic um, and collectively run. And I feel like the raincoats there's so much about the Raincoats music that encapsulates um, like the ethos of Rough Trade, and I, I feel like, in a way, they're kind of like the quintessential Rough Trade band because of the way the band conducted itself, but also the way the music sounds. Um, and uh, what about Rough Trade? Jeff Travis is, like, to me, um, uh, like when you think about iconic people who run American and English record labels, I feel like. People often think of like Ian Mackay or um, Calvin Johnson as the um, like iconic person who runs a punk label, but to me, Jeff Travis is like such an icon. It's so important mm-hmm. and has influenced a lot the way I think about music. Um, yeah.
3: When you talk to him, when you talk to him um, what was he like? What was his demeanor? How did he talk to you?
1: Yeah, he was really... Um, soft-spoken and intelligent, and it was it was really interesting to me um, that someone like, when I interviewed Laura Logic, who um, was in the band Essential Logic, and she plays saxophone on this record on the song Black and White, she talked a lot about how, um, Jeff Trav- so Jeff Travis and Maya Thompson co-produced this record together. And Laura talked a lot about how comfortable Jeff made everyone feel. And she felt like anywhere Jeff was, she felt comfortable and at home. Um, and it's kind of interesting to think of that as being like a quality of a good producer, that their presence just kind of makes everyone feel OK. Um, but he, yeah, he was... Um, really um, like a gentle person. Yeah.
3: Did the Raincoats want a career in music? Did they want to still be here 20 years after their first record? I mean, still be, having had an active career 10 albums, uh, played all over the world. Did they want to make a life and a living out of music? And were they frustrated resentful or that that didn't happen?
1: Um, no. Uh, as far as I know and from what they told me, like, it was never, like, part of their agenda to have careers in music, and that was kind of why they, they took their, their life as a band, like, record by record, and never had, like, big plans for... <laughs> Um, what was going to happen. It was interesting. I did a talk in London in mid-October with the entire band. It was um, Anna, Gina, Pamela, Vicky, and Shirley all together for the first time since 1979. And someone in the audience, it it was one of the members of the Modettes, she asked, like, why do you think um, a lot of the bands of this era who um, were went, had women in them, like only lasted a few records, but the bands that were primarily men have continued on in so many records. And Vicky said precisely because she didn't think that the Raincoats ever considered what they were doing as a career and they never intended to, like, find a way to maintain a sense of longevity. Um, but I think that's also probably why they felt like bold enough to experiment so much like every single one of their records is so different i don't think they were ever trying to repeat themselves so that they can continue touring which to my um, knowledge they didn't really like doing um but it's it's funny that a band that never thought about what they were doing as a career or particularly liked the lifestyle of touring Still continues to play. <laughs> they never, I mean, they, they still play a lot, um, although I, I can't see any, either of them referring to it as a career per Can you talk about
3: one song on this record um, that to you both captures who they are and and why they were so different from? And are so different from anybody
1: else. I mean, I know what song I pick, but I don't want to know what you would. Do you pick in love? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I feel like in love is the song on the record that I think of first when you ask me that question. But also a song that I feel captures everything that I love about the raincoats so perfectly. It's like. Definitely my favorite song of all time. Um, but it, it, there's, in a way, it's it's a song about the way that love and infatuation and obsession feel, which is kind of like an obvious thing to write a song about. Um, but at the same time, the way that The Raincoats put it across and complicated it is completely new and completely their own. And to me, that kind of embodies the idea of making art in a way that is simple, but if you have your own voice, um, it will sound unlike anything else. That's kind of what the raincoats represent to me, as a band that just um, found their own voice together. And I think that's why a lot of the times it's it's rare to find a band that you feel like oh they are influenced by the raincoats they sound like the raincoats but a lot of fans are inspired by the raincoats and I think the thing they inspire most is the idea of like finding your own voice and your own agency within your music or or art um, but that song is just um, makes me feel like oh I know by no other song has ever made me feel
3: questions for Jen, we might have? If I can start, um, you know, what's interesting about
2: this band is it also reaches out into the communities, so you've got the slits, you've got the you know, logic like you mentioned before. If you could talk a little bit about just, you know, how the outreach and, and the way that, you know, the band members interacted with the rest of the music community in London, but also beyond.
1: That was interesting for me to learn about because, um, There are all these interesting bands uh, existing at the same time, and the Raincoat story kind of overlaps with Essential Logic. Like Laura Logic contributed sax to the record, and the drummer Paul Mollo had previously been in The Slits, and they went on tour with Kleenex, and um, they were super inspired by Polystyrene from X Ray Specs. But at the same time, those bands weren't really like their friends <laughs> um, necessarily they like they didn't play shows together very much aside from Kleenex. So it was interesting to me to, to kind of realize that there wasn't there wasn't like a feminist punk scene then. Um, the Raincoats, their like most direct peers at the time were more like other bands on Rough Trade, like Gang of Four, Small Maps, um and those are the bands they considered to be their peers a lot more than like the other women who were making punk. Cool.
0: One of the things I liked about reading your book was how um, like, I grew up in the same part of London that the Raincoats um, practiced in and swatted in. And um, it really changed over time. Like, when I was a little kid, it was really wild. And, you know, <coughs> and now it's full of people that work for the World Bank. And um, their music really sounds like that, like wild and free and making music in the spaces that cities afford you. You know, it's kind of like when you listen to certain new bands from the same era, it has that same feeling where um, you can kind of um, hear the city that they're from and the economic reality that kind of allowed them that space doesn't really exist anymore but there are still bands that are kind of making things happen now, They're influenced by where they live and by the raincoats. Mm-hmm. And um, that's one of the things that I thought was cool about the book. and I didn't know if you wanted to talk about it, about how um, kind of the tentacles of sound in the modern... I don't know, that's a pretty great way of phrasing it, sorry. <laughs> well, I'm glad you
1: mentioned also the record always sounded to me so specifically like just the feeling of living in a city and maybe particularly being a woman in a city um the so much the like, amount of time alone you spend like in your own head when you live in a city walking around and so i wanted to try to like investigate that if i could um and just in terms of the the space, like the actual rooms that the Raincoats played in, that was um, like one of the most interesting things for me was learning about how the culture of squatting in London in the late seventies was so kind of responsible for the way they were able to conduct their band in a, in a lot of ways, like their music. Um, Vicky was really the only member of the band who had any formal music training, and the rest of them were kind of learning as they were going. But they still rehearsed all the time. Um, so their music was simple but like complex at the same time. And I feel like, in a way, it's strong because they were able to rehearse so much because of the um, space that squatting afforded them.
0: to do a book. Were they receptive when
1: you first approached them? They're one of the few bands I would think would not would think about it before they said yes. Uh, yeah, I kind of. Well, with the thirty-three and third series, you um, you can just propose a book on like a rolling basis. So I, I didn't like ask their permission before I um, proposed it. I just proposed it, and then um, for me, like. I knew that the, the ideal approach would be to interview the band and try to um, research as deeply as I could. And I, I know that when I first approached them, they were kind of like, we don't know you. <laughs> but <laughs> I went to London in November 2014, and I interviewed them. And I just I tried to gain their trust. And I think they realized that the way I thought about their band is something that They they felt good about and they made themselves they made themselves much more available than I could have ever anticipated, which was like really fantastic. And they also um, let me access uh, their archive that they've been um, putting together since um, 1977 of like newspaper clippings and Xerox zines and videos and. Scenes that they made, and I was super grateful for that too. Um,
2: uh, How do you separate yourself as a fan who's writing about something, like putting the idea of putting yourself into something and how you feel about it, as opposed to like how they actually felt? Like were there boundaries you created? Were there Thought processes, or can just like,
1: okay, this is how I feel about it, but like, how do I report it to what they say? Yeah, I, I tried to find a balance. Like, I want, I definitely, I wanted to not use I so much. Like, I didn't want the book to be. Like, a lot of thirty-three and a third's are like told in the first person, and uh, it's the first book about the raincoat, so I wanted it to be um, like reported thoroughly and. Kind of, you know, just telling the facts of the band's history, Um, but at the same time, like, it's from my perspective. Even if I'm not using I, and I know that, and the band knows that. um, I think readers know that too. Um, So, I I knew that like the connections that I I would be making were personal. Like, even though it's about the raincoats. I tried to create like a, a world around the record where I compare their music to like a Cindy Sherman photo or something. Um, and that is personal. Um, but I'm not sure if that answers your question or not. Difficult to pinpoint the bands that are inspired by the Raincoats because no one sounds like the Raincoats. Um, but, uh, well, in November I did uh, a talk with Katie Greer, the singer of Priests, who I know are bands that are really inspired by the Raincoats. And I think what that band is doing and their label Sister Polygon is um, a pretty good example of people who are very influenced by the coats and rough trade and doing it in an interesting way that feels like very relevant um, to 2018. Um, but uh, yeah, I I for the book, I didn't, the only person I interviewed who, um, or the youngest person I guess who I interviewed is Rachel Axe from the band Shopping. Yes. yes. <laughs> and um, I, she, um, has been a Raincoats fan for a really long time, and I think that what their band is doing is also um, uh, fairly like indicative of the influence of the Raincoats today. And I recommend listening to them. Well there's actually a video of uh Polystyrene and Laura Logic playing by Harry Christian Stage at Glastonbury and I recommend looking it up it's really fun. Um, but the well the raincoats they lasted until nineteen eighty-four and then they broke up and um, but and Anna worked at an antique shop and Gina Birch with, became a filmmaker. Um, Vicky Aspinall um, currently like teaches piano in England and Paul Molly has been a Spanish teacher for um, the past uh, three decades. Um, but the band's um, reunited in the 90s because of the enthusiasm of Kirk like, Cobain and Riot Girl. and they put out another record. And they've never really stopped playing since then. Um, they still like, like, Gina has new music that she's going to put out soon, and so does Anna. Um, They've stayed like fairly active. Anna has an amazing solo album from 2006 called The Lighthouse that I think is deeply underappreciated, and I recommend listening to it.
3: When you had, because you had access to the archive and you were able to interview so many band members, what was the most surprising thing or a couple things that you found out that you wouldn't have suspected before you went through all that material? Mm
0: -hmm,
1: Surprising. I think so surprising not surprise me a lot, but <laughs> um, uh, it's a good question. Uh, well, um, well, I would say Palma's entire story is like surprising, just because I wouldn't have been able to anticipate it. She has such an interesting life story, like leaving Spain when she was a teenager and coming to London on her own, and she talked to me like really candidly about the things that had happened to her in her life that she felt like kind of um, made her uh, like hardened her really and just primed her to be a punk in the, in the late '70s. Um, I don't necessarily really, I don't want to spoil it by like saying the details of her story, but um, I would say learning about Palmolive's life was. Surprising, and I think she, I hope she writes a book herself because there's more details that I could fit. Yeah.
2: You, uh, you, you spoke about the, uh, she spoke about the, uh, the sense of, of the music coming out of a particular place, and that place changed. So after they uh, got together again, in whatever year that was, and started playing again they
1: have a sense of place about their music of, of, of mm-hmm. it's a good question and actually it kind of reminds me of the frustration question that grew the beginning because since the book is only focused on the year 1979 basically I I had to resist like asking them questions about um, like the later the later era of the band so I'm not really sure um, I hope that I get to talk to them more about the '90s at some point, like though. But well, when you get to listen to it, do you feel? Oh, like when it? I listen to it, um, yeah, it sounds different. I'm not sure if you've listened to the "Looking in the Shadows" the record from the '90s, but it's pretty different. Um, it's more polished and um, sturdier, <laughs> but it's really good.
0: Another thing that I really liked about it is is how you kind of interlude all these stories about um, different artists um, into the narrative. And sort of the Raincoats were another band that, like a lot of British pop and punk bands who sort of come out of art school and um, that was, I thought, was just a really cool and interesting part of their story and it kind of weirdly connects them to sound like the who they're not like rock and rollers or whatever but it's another thing that probably isn't possible anymore because they don't have free education in england you know you used to be able to go to a really good art school for free but um now only rich kids can but um how do you think
1: Well, Anna and Gina met at art school, so I feel like that is kind of the most obvious response to the question. Um, and, but it was, I loved talking um, to Gina about her interest in conceptual art and just the way that being in that environment kind of was changing the way she thought about what she could do as an artist. Um, she, um, she talked to me a bunch about this. Performance art troupe called the Tink Theatre of Mistakes that she went to go see a bunch when she first moved to London. And it was these performance artists where um, I write about it in here, but the short version is that um, it was these performance artists and like the mistakes that they were making and repeating um, were kind of what activated the performance they were doing. And in, I for, for me, I can I can draw parallels to that and what the Ringoats were doing too, and that they um, didn't intend to make perfect, polished music. Um, but the art school like environment of their band was really interesting to read about, and just even for like like Anna. Um, she made a music video for the band when she was in art school for the song Black and White. But she talked to me about her frustrations of the art school, like not taking what they were doing seriously. Like they would take systems music seriously, and if you were making um, sort of very like minimalist music at the time, that could qualify as like your art school project. But um, the art school didn't consider the raincoats to be. Art basically, and so Anne and Gina talked a lot about how gratifying it was to go play at Moma in 2010 to be like, <laughs> what's <where> for art now.
3: <laughs> do we have any more? I see eager faces.
2: Well, Jen and Real are happy to sign books, and we do have books at the front counter. Um, the way that we usually
0: Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights bookstore and publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free to see upcoming events at City Lights bookstore in San Francisco check out www.citylights.com slash events.